So, I was thinking this notion of um, the divine will. Hashem loves things, hates things, delights in things, that, that whole genre. Um, at the end of yesterday's class, there was a question about it. So, I actually. I was saving the discussion for chapter 23. Um, but I thought about it and I think that I might as well have the discussion now. It doesn't really necessarily, it's critical when we get to chapter 23, but I might as well deal with it now. So I described in explaining the Tanya um, how Hashem, I mean, the Tanya uses the words delights and and um, hates, right, with regard to, you know, when, he, when, he's, when he's creating the side of holiness, right, when he's speaking to the, to the creations which are holy, right, he's delighting in um, dispensing life to them, right, and engaging them um, due to their bittle, due to their devotion to him, and how they fuse together and come, come into this kind of unity. Yeah. And then when it comes to the klip and the sitrach, right, these demonic hellspawn that we spoke about yesterday, um, he despises them, right? And, and has hatred and disgust and, and, and so speak, turns his back. And that gives us the, the kind of the face versus the backside, right? Um, and then the question was asked, well, does it really mean that Hashem actually delights? Yeah, she has delight in that. Um, and I said, yes. And, and the, the issue and the question is not that Hashem stands in different relations to different things, um, that could be a question also, but that, that, that's less of a question. I mean, I think I've used this analogy before from the Rambam that fire both melts wax and hardens clay. We don't think of that as plurality within the fire, right? Justice demands the wicked be punished, the righteous be rewarded, right? We don't think of it as multiplicity within justice itself, right? But once you talk about, you know, um, subjective experiences, right? The love of something as, a, as an experience that someone is having versus the um, hatred that someone is feeling, right? Those are clearly distinct. And, and so there's an argument that, and, and it's foundational in, in, in halacha, as we understand the mitzvah of the unity of God, that Hashem is not divided into parts and that necessitates that Hashem does not have emotional experiences per se and certainly doesn't change from one emotional experience to another. Um, and yet I refuse to just simply say this is just metaphoric language for, you know, the, the, how Hashem stands vis-a-vis certain things. So, the, the way I want to address this um, is actually to step a little bit out of the Tanya and address a, a more fundamental question. And then we'll come back to this question because it relates, but I, but I think if I can get the fundamental question dealt with also, then that's a, a great idea. So one of the things that Hasidus makes a tremendous amount of, puts a tremendous amount of emphasis is doing things for Hashem. Um, Hashem wants certain things and we do them, we're doing them for Him. Yes? You hear this idea. Um, and, and there's a discussion in Jewish theology, you know, is... is, is is our religious striving for our betterment or for God. Now, that can be viewed in very, very shallow ways. Um, but it, and I don't want to talk about the more shallow ways, but 
Now, it's obviously if it's being done for us, God clearly values whatever growth or benefit we're achieving, right? So to, so to, to use an expression, this is um, that, that, that God being good um, is benevolent, desires the welfare of others. And so obviously, even if I'm just doing things for my own self, but if they're genuine good, right, then that's something God values because he's a good being, right? Um, and, and conversely, if I'm doing something for God, um, it, it can't really be that I am sacrificing myself for God um, because then that would, that would mean that I would have no motivation to do it, right? There has to be some part of me, some aspect of me which finds fulfillment in, in fulfilling God's will or doing things for God, right? So it's not such a strong dichotomy as like a childish or superficial is gonna make it out, oh, is it for me, is it for God, right? Um, if God values, if God is good, if God values something that involves my service, then in some level it's always gonna be for God. And if I'm motivated to do it, on some level it's always gonna be for me, right? It's a much more subtle discussion. Um, so to, to use like a simple analogy of, of the two sides of the argument, if I am taking care of my child, I'm clearly doing it for them. Um, what I mean is that means the, we, the, the, the success or failure is defined by my child's welfare being improved, right? Now, I, I care about that. I'm motivated to do that, right? Um, but, you know, as a normal human being, I'm not doing that for the feeling of, feeling of fulfillment. That makes sense? That's, that's clear to everybody? Okay. Um, conversely, um, when I'm studying, it's because I want to gain knowledge. So I'm doing something to, that's self-edifying, right? Now, it's definitely the case that, that people in my life will benefit the more knowledgeable I am, the wiser I am, right? Okay, so it's not at their expense. You see what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it's a much more subtle. So, so the, the technical term for this is is the service for the, for the most high, is the service for God. And... So Hasidus takes a very extreme position. This that that yes, that we're doing it for God, right? Um, that when we, we we serve God, we we bring God pleasure. In fact, just to quote Tanya from later on, um, chapter twenty-seven, um, he says. There are. There are two kinds of, of pleasure, gratification. And that's the, 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 the This is the, the, the speaking, the divine presence speaking to Jewish people that there's kind of two things that God enjoys. So we're doing it to give God pleasure. We're doing it to, because it's, because God wants it or something along those lines. So the problem obviously comes about is, okay, wait a minute. Our, our fundamental notion of God in Judaism and when I say fundamental, I don't necessarily mean it's a total. I mean, like, as a starting point, is that God has a characteristic called shlemos. It's a Hebrew term. Shlemos is best um, translated as um, complete or whole. You can use the word perfect. I don't mind. People get like, hung up on the word perfect for some reason. Um, it's a little bit easier to understand what we mean if we understand what's negating. Something is whole if it's not missing anything, right? Something is missing something if there's some lack that can be fulfilled. Right, so if something's missing something, you feel the lack, now it's whole, right? Make sense? 
So people are not inherently shalom. We're born, for instance, ignorant. We're lacking in knowledge, and we need to gain that knowledge. We do it so through learning, right? The basic idea is that God is shalom. He is whole. There is, you know, I say perfect, I don't really get There is no notion of improving God. God is not the kind of being which can be improved upon. Okay? At all, ever, full stop. Okay? What that means can be a matter of dispute. Um, I, I, I feel that this is important to be quite adamant about. It. You cannot improve upon God. So just to make this very concretely, if you imagine God as being bored and creates the world for his entertainment, then whatever being you're conceiving of is not God any more than a person who worshiping, worshiping a pagan statue is also not worshiping God. Okay? If you imagine um, that God doesn't know something that he should have known, right? if only God had known he would have done differently, well, then that's not God. Okay? That any type of thinking in terms of chasar, in terms of deficiency, such that God could in some sense have been better than he is, is not God. Okay? So then what does it mean I'm doing something that he wants? I'm doing something to give him pleasure. Like, that seems to be enhancing God, right? Is the problem good? Is that problem's pretty clear? Yeah. Okay. What's the solution? That's a word game. Although we're not doing it for the And you want me to prove it's a word game? Do you speak Hebrew? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if you speak Yiddish? Yeah. Okay, say it in Yiddish. Explain what you're saying in Yiddish. You don't want to say you don't want to say you need something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, in have you heard Yiddish speakers making a big distinction between those two words all the time? Okay, so it doesn't help. It, 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 turns out, it turns out that the want-need distinction is like an interesting cultural artifact that comes about from certain places. It's a bit of a word game. It has its uses in certain places. If you want to know where it's really important, it's important in economics. Very, very briefly, economics, in economics you, economists discovered that people will pay for things um, based on the interplay of supply and demand. How much I want it versus how available it is, that will determine the price. Make sense? Things are less available, I'm willing to pay more. Things are more important to me, I'm willing to pay more, right? And that's complicated how those two things interact. It turns out though that when some things become very, very rare and thus the price goes up, demand drops because you know it's just not worth it for me to have it, right? If an iPhone costs you $20 million, you're not gonna buy one, right? Make sense? Okay. If the price of water goes up to $20 million a bottle, are you still gonna buy it? Yeah, why? Ah, see, that's the thing is that on a societal level, there's certain things on a societal, on an individual level, that the, the that the demand doesn't drop even if the price becomes, you know, source of the roof. That's like very important. But the thing is, if you now move that subjectively, you ask yourself, okay, well, what is the difference between needing and wanting? And you start to realize it doesn't actually have a strict definition because you have to make some value judgment before you do that. Like if I'm a kamikaze pilot on, you know, about to blow up an, an, an American ship in World War II, I don't really need lunch tomorrow, do I? Right? Like what's the... Because I don't need... 
I don't need what? There is no Hebrew. You could say tzarich, you could say rotzeh, but these words carry lots of meanings in different languages. But I don't understand the word, like why the word means. Because because when you apply it to something, a word game is when you use words to cover over the fact that you're not actually addressing the issue. Okay. I am not lacking. Okay. You're doing something for me. How have you solved the problem by saying, I don't need it, I want it? The need-want distinction is a very important distinction that when, once you take certain values as fixed, people will pay any price to achieve certain things because they, they now need those things. And other things, at a certain point, the cost is too high and they'll drop it. So again, think of iPhones versus water. But that only works, that, that, that only is, that, is not, that, that isn't really absolute unless you're dealing with like a, a market where you have lots of different people all functioning like on a statistical average, which creates how markets work. If you're talking about an individual, well, then you need to first figure out what their values are. So there's no automatic, quote, needs versus wants. Because whatever I value, what, what, and that's, I value things. And then some things I'm willing to pay more for, and some things I'm willing to pay less for, and some things I'm willing to pay an infinite price for, and some things I'm willing not to pay an infinite price for. But that's, but there's no, but the thing is, that doesn't, so, so you're not saying anything significant about like actual individual people when you say needs versus want. Now, what isn't the useful thing to say, which is not a word game, which is, okay, you, something is important to you, so you value something, you care about something, you want something, you need something, use whatever word you want, I don't care. How much are you willing to suffer for it? How much are you willing to pay for it? That's a useful question, right? Okay, that's fair. It still doesn't solve our problem, because what was our problem? He's not lacking. If he's not lacking, how is it important to him to begin with? That's the issue, right? You see, so A, it's a word game because you're not really, you're not, you're saying something, you're just playing with words, you're not actually addressing the question. Number two is even if you want to use those words, you start to realize they don't work well when you talk about an individual. They don't have concrete meaning as an individual. Say, I really need, I really need help. I mean, no, I mean, you could not get the help and you could fail the task and move on in life, right? Yeah, but, 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 then, I, but then I won't be able to pay my mortgage payments. Okay, so you'll be homeless. I mean, there are homeless people, right? But I don't want to be one. Ah, okay, so you really value not being homeless and therefore you need to pay your mortgage and therefore you need to clean this task and you can't do it on your own. It all starts with your value judgments, which, you know, are not like so fixed. Right? Everybody has, you know, some degree of freedom about these types of things. Okay. Now you're saying something important. Like, now you're saying something important, right? You're saying what? The, the question arises because we think things have importance to people because they feel lax. Okay. Um, and the simple answer is yes. That's the simple answer. That's the simple answer. But what about things are important to us because of how they relate to certain things that we lack. Now, there's many kinds of lacks. So, for instance, I mentioned this previous class about there's say food and companionship, right? Food is a technicality. I just can't get, I can't survive. I, I will cease to exist. It's like, it's, it, it's, not something about the, it's not something about what it is to be human. It's just a, a problem that like, if I don't eat, I'll die. Whereas like companionship is part of what it is to be human. So I say maybe one is a survival, one, one is a lack on the level of survival, one is a la- lack, on, lack on the level of um, being. But whatever, it doesn't matter. But if you have no lacks, then why would anything extrinsic be, why anything outside of you be important to you, okay? What is Chassidus' answer to that? 
The answer to that is God is not rational. That's the answer. The answer is correct. A rational basis for ascribing importance to something is because it touches on something that you lack. Food is important in as much as I'll die without it. Companionship is important in as much as I'm a social creature, right? So what is rationally important to God? What thing other, what, uh, what, what other than God, just, what, uh, what, what should be important to God? No, no, no. The answer is nothing. Nothing should be important to God. Now, there's a separate question. Is God bound by reason? No. So can God make things important? Yes. Good. If you ask why he made it important, you don't understand the answer. That's what Chassidus says. You might not like it, but that's what it says. Yeah, the answer is that not all not that the, that not all rationality has to be and not all importance has to be rational, right? And God can have you know, importance which is not rational, which is a discussion for not right now. That's also people. Not really. Why? Like wanting and needing is also a different thing. Sometimes you just want something that is even bad for you. It's not coming. Yeah, yeah, but that's a perversion. Right. In other words, what, what you're saying is, right, so some things will be used as, as super rational and, and sub-rational. I don't want to get into these things. But in other words, they're, they're, and then there's subjective experiences of things being rational versus them objectively being rational. Like the fact that you need to have children um, or desire to have children or should desire to have children is all very rational now. It might feel irrational subjectively, like you can't reason your way through it. But, you know, if you take a step back and say, well, I mean, you know, if human beings are important and we don't have any more than the, the important value of human beings will cease to exist, it kind of makes it important for human beings to have children, right? It is a rational thing for people to want. Um, and then there are things which are clearly corruptions, we sh- right, where we want things that we shouldn't, that are irrational, right? But then there's this other idea, like God is not a rational being per se, and he created reason, so like, whatever. So now, here's the thing. Let us say something is important to you, Okay? and you come into contact with the thing that is important to you, what happens? You want it. Fills you in some sort of way. it fills you in some sort of way, right? You feel fulfilled, yeah, right? Because now you're not lacking it. Because now you're not lacking it. Okay. So but it's so important. One second, one second. So the thing is here is actually you have to separate things out on two levels. Well, there's what I'm going to call the revealed level or the experiential level. If something is important to me and I am lacking it, I will feel one way, right? Let's say I feel empty and hungry and wanting and yearning, right? Those types of things, right? And if something is important to me and I have it, whatever having it means, we're not going to worry about that, then what happens? I feel whole and fulfilled, correct? Good? Okay. That wholeness that I am feeling, what is that? What is that? Like, something was really important to you and now you have it. So now you feel fulfilled. fulfilled. You feel whole. You have pleasure. You have delight. Again, I don't want to get caught up in semantics. What is that thing that, you, you were, that you're feeling? That's right, you're feeling shlemus. You're feeling shlemus. You're feeling the totality of your being. So what, what you need to understand is like this. The thing that feels so good about having what's important to you, the thing that you're feeling, the self it, is not the thing, is yourself. In other words, 
and the way Chassidus illustrates this is by, is by showing us that there's actually other ways we can get that kind of positivity in, in kind of a roundabout kind of way. And this is humor. I don't, I don't mean, people laugh for different reasons. I mean things that are actually funny, not like using like uh, foul language or, or, or innuendo. I mean like things that are actually funny. If someone says something that's really funny, what happens? You laugh. How do you feel when you laugh? Joyful, right? There's all this positivity, right? Where's that positivity coming from? Right. So it was locked inside of you and you couldn't, and you couldn't experience, it didn't, it didn't come out on the experiential level and on the revealed level. And the joke, for reasons we're not going to talk about right now, somehow causes that dam to burst and that positivity comes out. Okay? And an, an analogous thing happens when you get the things that are important to you. A similar thing happens. It's not identical. I don't want to go into the differences. So the positive feeling of fulfillment, of pleasure, of delight you're experiencing is not something that, you're, that was outside of you. It's not, like, it's not like there's a fire over there and it's warming you. What's happening is what was inside of you and not revealed and not experienced has now become revealed and experienced. In other words, it, it, the fire is inside, but you were cold. And now... You're revealed, you know, either if you want to think of it, the fire has been brought closer to your, to your level of experience or you came closer to the fire, however you want to think about it. Now you feel that warmth, you feel that positivity. Or another example is the source of light is your very soul. You're experiencing darkness. So where's the light coming from? It's coming from within you. So what happens when you get the things that are important to you, this intense positivity of your very core being when, you're, when your being is whole goes into a revealed state and you get to experience it. Now, because we identify ourselves, it's very important, with our experience of, our, of life, we feel like we're gaining something we previously lacked. Right, make sense? Okay. Now, in, I wanna stop, does that, it's a different way of thinking about things, but does that make at least more or less some kind of sense to people? So now, what happens when we think about God? So there's God. God isn't lacking anything. God is, God is, God is, is good in, 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 in the most transcendent sense possible. Okay? Even transcending what we could conceive as good. Okay, whatever. And then there's the fact that God has made a level of reality called Revelation, experience, okay? That's not God himself. If you want to use Kabbalistic terminology, that's the spheros, where God is, that's, the, that's, the, that's the, you know, the space of God being revealed. Not yet to other beings, but there's a space of kind of God being revealed. Now what happens, okay, and then God has determined that certain things are going to be important. Irrationally so, like with no, no there's no rational basis why those things are important. But if those important things to God occur, what will happen? the goodness of God's being will now be radiated through that revealed level, right? And therefore, whatever encounters that revealed level will, will actually see the goodness of God. In other words, like this, when I am doing something to make you feel good, what I am doing is I am helping the depths of your being that already exist become revealed. Now, there, now here's the question. Am I doing it because I want to benefit from that or am I doing it because that's, that's a good thing? I'll give you just an example. Have you ever um, given a gift to someone? 
gotten it written, written them a letter or something, yeah? Have you ever wanted to be there when they opened it? Okay, now, <laughs> is sometimes it going to be more impactful meaning for them if you're not there when they open it? Yeah. So now you start to experience the tension. Do I want that inner goodness that they're not experiencing to be revealed within themselves so that I get to benefit from it? Uh, or because, mm-hmm. it's an, it has, because it's important to them to have that inner goodness revealed? You see the difference? Okay, so Hasid is saying this. God has determined that certain things will flood the spiritual realms with the revelation of God's essence. This is what is known as God's pleasure or God's delight. Is that improving God's being in any way? No. no. Why do those things fill all of reality with God's goodness and God's truth and God's whatever? Because God determined that that's how that's going to be. Not unlike human beings where the things that have that effect on us are part, inherent attributes of our being. Okay? And therefore, by the way, they, we feel as good as they go deep into our being, right? You can never feel as fulfilled from food, which is a base technical need for survival, as you can fulfill, say, with companionship, which is part of what it is to be human. So now, if you do those things, then what happens? Then... Then God is is God is being manifest experientially, and, and so here's the thing: there's kind of those two levels, right? There's like within yourself. There's the level of revealed that is what's called the inner world, and there's what's revealed to the other, right? Okay. So when we speak about there are things that God hates, or there are things that God loves, and He's experiencing that, what do we mean? We don't mean that God's, God's essential being is changing from being happy to being sad. For that matter, your essential being isn't changing from happy or being sad either. When you're happy, your essential being hasn't shifted. When you're sad, your essential being hasn't shifted. The question is, how is your essential being being manifest, your essential being which is inherently good and wonderful and pure and beautiful, and whatever, how is that which is that being manifest on the level that we call experience? So how much of God's essential being in what way is it being manifest through the ways in which God interacts with the creations? And, that's, and, that, and so it turns out that it actually means quite literally the same thing. When you do something that makes me feel good, you are not making me essentially a better being than I already was. You are facilitating whatever is good about my being being experienced more consciously and manifestly in my experience of life. Which you know, is valuable for any number of reasons. When we do things that make Hashem happy or when things happen that make Hashem happy, what does that mean? That means the truth of God's being is being more manifest through his interaction with reality. First, on the, that, that kind of, on the level of experience which we call his, and then maybe it even transfers on to the level of experience of the spiritual reality. Maybe even it makes it all the way down to us. And then we say God hates, what does that mean? That means God is withholding the goodness of his being in the interaction. And so think about this, right? When somebody, right, going back to the, what the Tanya says, if you turn your back on somebody, right? It's not just physically you're turning your back, right? You're showing that you, whatever's inside should not come to them, right? And you can do this, by the way, internally. Um, this is called disassociate. You ever done something you found absolutely repulsive and disgusting but needed to do? So where, we, where did, you, did you allow 
your consciousness to be fully engaged with what you were doing? Yeah. No. You kind of try as much as possible to like remove it. Right? Right, so that you're so in other words, you're trying to you're trying to kind of separate your being from whatever whatever of your abilities need to be interact with that thing. So there's no notion of like God sitting around feeling empty and bored and needing to be made pleasurable. It's God has decided, for lack of words, that it is that there's a reality of him being revealed. And there's no reason why he needs to be revealed. Like we have reasons why we need to be revealed to ourselves because think about it. Like if, if the goodness within us is not revealed in our psyche, are we going to be functional? No. And if we're not functional, what happens? We die. Okay. So, right. We have, right. But God is not going to die if he's not revealed, right? He's not going to do any, God, right. God does not depend on being revealed. So God has decided that it is valuable for him to be revealed. He's decided furthermore, it's valuable that revelation reach us. He's decided that it's valuable that that, that that revelation, he's decided that the things that should reveal him will be X, Y, and Z. And that also means when those things have the opposite, so let's say klipa, that therefore those things preclude his revelation. Okay? And the thing is when, when, the, when your being becomes revealed within yourself, we call that delight and pleasure. Right? And when that gives you positive orientation towards others. We call that love, right? Okay, so we're not using these as like metaphoric language. We're abstracting what they mean and applying them to this kind of spiritual reality. Okay, but it is not correct to say that God is sitting around feeling like, I feel so empty inside and that's why I did stuff. It's kind of the opposite. God decided that certain things are important and that created the reality of the emptiness that needs to be filled by his being. Can we say that his... Um, well, that 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 that, that, that depends on what he decided is important, which I don't want right. to go into right now. Okay, so that means is that the more that God delights in something, this is why it's critical for chapter eight. The more that God delights in something, the more God's being is felt there. Those are synonymous things, and that's what it means. By the way, when you get married. It's going to be very important to you that your husband is in a good mood. Why? You may not know why, but think about it. Why? Because Shekinah is going to be there. What? Eh, don't be religious. <laughs> because if he's happy, you're happy. No. Because then he'll be happy to give you what you want. <laughs> <laughs> the more he is there. That, no, because that, otherwise he's not there. That's, it's that simple. If he's not in a good mood, he's not there. That, that's the truth. Like, like, you will end up just feeling alone. And guess what? It's really going to be really important to him that you're in a good mood. Why? Because then you're there. Because here's the thing. When people are not in a good mood, in a deep sense, they're not there. Not just they're not there to other people, they're not even there to themselves. Right? That level of being is not really... It's not really being manifest consciously. So this is why we equate giving God pleasure and bringing God's presence into the world. They're not like conceptually that distinct from each other. It's not like God is sitting around being a hedonist like, I really want to feel good. That's, that's silly. Okay. If, we, if we understand that idea, which is again, very, very, very core thing in how Hasidus views things, then we can understand. Okay, so God has hidden himself to some degree because he's interacting with, with other beings, right? And giving them their, their being. He's speaking them into beings. So it's already some level of God. You know, God is not, is not delighting 
absolutely in creating things because creation is an act of self-denial on God's part as we discussed previously, right? But within that limited scope, he's delighting in the fact that he's engaging beings who are truly devoted and, and connected to him, okay? Which could be taken in a selfish way, but think, if we think about it, it's not really about the selfishness, it's about the unity between him and them, which, which does reveal him, right? In some sense. And then the klipa, God despises, right? Or to put it another way, God hates, or to put it another way, that in as much as God is speaking to them, God is, God, God's being is not really coming through that at all, because if it did, they couldn't be, the, uh, the, 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 they couldn't be. And if they're going to be, he can't be, right? That, that, you know what I mean? Um, and so if you can kind of conceptualize more what we mean by experience and the role it plays and how experience is not, is, 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 is not the real being of God, it's not the real being of a person for that matter either, then, then these questions get solved and we can understand what we're talking about. Um, good? Okay. But it's not like he's, what I, what I understood from the last passage before, um, the more revelating something was like, it's more like, it's obviously not the lacking part, it's more like overflowing part. Like, God is overflowing with goodness that no, 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 God, no, 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 no. So, so the notion, God is not, so there are Jewish theologies that think of God as overflowing with goodness. Because it doesn't think of God as overflowing with goodness. Well, why can't God be overflowing with goodness? Because there's, there's no such thing as beyond God. Right. Right. So, right. So even that idea that God delights in the giving and the bestowing of life to others who are so devoted to him and thus creating a unity between them or as some of my friends like say, a relationship between them, right? Your relationship with God. That's all very nice, but we all have to remember in the back of our minds that that's all predicated in a certain amount of self-denial on God's part. Because if God were to, let me put it this way, if God were to truly delight in something, that would result in there just being just God. Just God. This is where we're going to shift in chapter 23. Okay. Because remember, you delighting in something means your being is being manifest experientially first within your, within your own kind of inner space and then to those beyond you, right? But, but the core of your being is not being enhanced because you're, you're, you feel fulfilled. It's the opposite. It's the core of your being is the do, thing doing the fulfilling. It's the giving you the sense of being filled. And it only does that under certain conditions because of the things that are important to the core of your being, which in people is rational because we're limited beings. And with God, it's not rational because he has no deficiencies that anything should reasonably be important to him. And so therefore we just chalk it up to his free will or something. Good? All right. So is it important that you serve God? Why? Because it's important. That's right. Because it's important. It's important to him. That's right, because it's important to him. Why is it important to him? Because it's important. Because he made it important to him. Well, why did he make it important to him? No, no. It's really important to him. Like, this is the thing. It's like, it's, this is the thing. It's better to be honest. Right, go back to what I spoke about yesterday about like when we go back into ourselves, like we have needs. Now those needs might feel irrational because you can't explain them, but if you take a step back and you ask like, why would a person you know, want to have children? Why would a person need to have friends? Right? We could explain that rationally. Yeah. Even though subjectively, you, like, you can't rationalize it within yourself because it just goes to the core of your being. But if you're God, then, then there's no standing outside of God to rationalize what, God, what kind of thing God is such that God would be more complete if he had this other thing. And so it's just, you know, it just, 
there, there is, it's not you can't answer it. It's not like God has an answer either. There's no why. There is no why. That, that's what means irrationalized. God has made this important. And I say made simply because it's being important is attributed to him, not to some outside rule. But it's not like, it's not like there's any justification for that. Which, by the way, leads for an interesting consequence. It's not really related to Tanya, but exactly well on the topic. Um, the Rebbe says in one of his talks, in a footnote, that given that this is the truth, if a person, or I'm going to say it a little bit nicer than what the Rebbe says to make it a little more attainable. To the degree that a person feels like they are important because they are fulfilling God's will is the degree to which they are denying that it's God's will. Wait. To the degree that you feel like you are important because you are fulfilling God's will is the degree to which you are denying that it's God's will. Because if it's God's will, it's not like there's some sort of rule that says that he needs to accomplish X and therefore he needed to have you to do it. Right? It's only important because he made it. So do you carry any intrinsic importance? It's like, I cannot have children without my wife. So she carries like intrinsic importance, right? I can't do it on my own. Right? But if God, if, if nothing is important unless God makes it important, then the fact that he made what's important entail you doesn't give you any kind of real importance in your own right at all. Anyway, so chalk that one up for humility. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, I'm serving God and fulfilling divine purpose. Yeah, and that makes you so great. Like, I mean, the fact that there's a divine purpose and that you fulfill it has nothing to do with you. Like, you're not in, like, divine purpose doesn't, doesn't, there's no rule that says divine purpose has to entail you. God, God made it be that way. It didn't have to be that way. So like, you know, the divine purpose could have not entailed you and would have just been equally fulfilled. Serious humility, right? <laughs> Okay. That's why I said I added the two degree because you know we don't want to like you know totally. <laughs> exact the exact quote. Yeah. No, I added it to degree because as a general anything in chassidus when you want to apply it in life you have to realize that it's it's not like halach it's two degrees you know we can't just. Uh, see if it, Okay. Okay. But since the true purpose of creation is simply that it arose in his will, that he the Hebrew word is nesava, he desired, which is, which is the idea that he makes it be important for no reason. Therefore, the creation itself carries no, no action. It takes no space. I mean, it, it has no, no significance. Um, for, its entire, for its entire purpose is simply that God's being has declared it to be meaningful. It doesn't have any meaning in its own right. And as a consequence, making a dwelling place is specifically through negating the sense of one of the significance of one's existence, meaning that a person should not think, I, this is, this is something, I, this is, Lord, I have become something in as much as I have fulfilled the divine purpose. Because 
the notion of making a dwelling place requires uh, uh, requires nothing other than the fact that God has desired it. Yeah, so you are playing out what God has decided to be important. You're not really, in some ultimate sense, contributing. And so if you feel like you have become something of significance by fulfilling God's will, in some kind of weird way, you're denying that it's God's will. Yeah, anyway. It's funny, I was reading um, the 12th Sikkim, and it said the purpose of creation of every Jew and all the world is to make a dwelling place for God in this world in Tanya chapter 13. So 35. Oh. 30, 33. 33. That's quotes from 33. Mm. Yes. All right. So anyway, that same chapter then goes on to say the next one, that you should rejoice in God's delight. Mm. Yeah, rather than? That's right. But God only delight, God, but it does say in that same chapter that God rejoices when you're rejoicing. He doesn't rejoice when you're not rejoicing. <laughs> anyway. All right, we'll go back to the chapter. But have we solved the problem a little bit? Yes, the, in other words, when we're speaking about how God feels, the, the kind of key, just to bring it all back, the key is that we naturally identify our being with our experience, and then we project that onto God, and the mistake is actually happening within us. When we are experiencing things, Chazidah says that is a manifesting to a greater or lesser degree or concealing to a greater or lesser degree something of our being which is really transcendent above the experience. And if we understand that, that delight and pleasure is a, a very pure expression of our being into our experience, and then that can be then shared with others, then we understand that that's what we mean something like that by God. So it becomes sounds with the revelation of God's being in reality rather than like making God feel good because he's lonely inside or something, which he's not. Okay? All right. Now, back to the Tanya. The bag the, that sikha that I quoted from is a sikha where the Rebbe goes through all the reasons why God would want a dwelling place in the lower world that you probably hear in classes and says this are obviously all wrong because then God would not need to decide it's important. <laughs> then the Rebbe has all reasons why those reasons are given, but he says they can't really be all the ultimate reason because if there's a reason that it's not really coming from God deciding it's important. It's, it's taking place in some other... But also, where he would Do you? I mean... Are you not, so sure? We should not... Are you so sure you need reasons? Have you, have you tried living without making, your, without making your life so dependent on rationality? I'm sure some things I don't make... Okay, so maybe, maybe it's not so simple. As, as a friend of mine told me many years ago, he said, reason is a tool. Just because you have a hammer doesn't mean you have to go around holding it and hitting everything. Uh. <laughs> wow. Okay. Now. Okay. But the sitra achra and the unholiness is an abomination unto God which he hates. How's that for language? Abomination. abomination. I love that word. Do I like every word? No, there are words I, I, I really don't like. <laughs> okay. And he does not give to life from his inner will and true desire as if he delighted in it. In other words, that, that God's being is not really being coming through. When God speaks to the klipa to give it existence, right? God's being is in no way coming through or engaging with that. Again, the physical analogy was like you turn your... Back, you turn your face away from someone. But in the manner one reluctantly throws something over his shoulder to, to his enemy. Now, why would God do this? So I talked about this, I think, yesterday, right? 
He does so only to punish the wicked and to give a good reward to the righteous who subjugate the sitra achra. In other words, he needs enemies. God delights in, 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 in conflict with the enemy. Not, you know, not the conflict per se, but the, um, you know, winning in the conflict. And, and this is why it is called the hind part of the supernal will. Because the hind part, the back part, I said yesterday, is stuff you despise, is how you relate to things you despise, but you need in order to get what you value, right? So you're engaged on the one hand and you're totally disengaged on the other hand. Okay. Now, um, let's talk a little bit for a moment. You notice it says he does it in order to punish the wicked and give goodly reward to the righteous. So which of those do you find more problematic that requires explanation? I'm making you pick which of the reward to the righteous thing that you you feel requires more explanation. God creates evil. God creates evil so that those who overcome it should be rewarded. Or God creates both true. God creates evil to punish those. So which one? The righteous wouldn't be righteous if there was no, like, it would just be regular. There's no evil to work on. Well, so right. why is the evil need to be punished? Also, that's not even, well, this is going like off time. People like, rewards, we don't know Hashem says evil. Like, we don't? Yeah, because like, let's say like it's all. Well, that book over there. It's called the Chumash. It's quite pretty explicit about a lot of stuff. And if you're confused, there's a Talmud and a code of Jewish law. And it's a lot of details of what God thinks is good and evil. No, I don't know the whole story. Well, like, like you don't know what's evil, like with the farm, like the crash into the treasure chest. Whatever. I have no idea what you're talking about. about. Like, you don't know what's evil? No, I'm saying no. Like, it's evil. We don't know what will reward. Right, and like it's only like why like good people you think like they have evil things like. It's, I'm oh, I'm not talking about what. I'm not talking about how we look at other people. Yeah. You don't know, that. Yeah, you don't know the whole story. I'm talking about, but we do know what's evil. Like. You know, yeah. killing people, evil. Yeah. Saving them when they're drowning, good. Sedaka, good. But you know, like eating righteous. pork, evil, right? Actually, no, 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 that's actually an important distinction. The word righteous um, in, in, um, in, in Hebrew, tzaddik, um, and also, for that matter, the word righteous back in the day when it used to be used. The, the word righteous actually goes along with the word normal. There, there, there are two meanings of the word normal. normal. Normal means what we expect. We can expect things in, for one of two reasons, either because they are common and frequent, so that's why we expect them. That's one use of the word normal. But the other use of the word normal is um, that which is proper. Um, so, for instance, um, even if lots of people are interrupting you and that happens more often than not, you still feel like it's not normal. I mean, everyone, everyone just, no one's being normal here. What do you mean? You mean like there is a proper way to behave, right? And that should be expected. And this is what's key because the term tzaddik is contrasted with the term chassid in, in, in Torah or the term righteous versus the term pious. Whereas righteous means you're meeting expectations and pious means you're surpassing them. Which I know is a little bit disturbing considering that someone who's totally transformed their animal soul is called a tzaddik in Tanya. That should say something about the altar of his worldview. <laughs> But okay, 
Um, you should know that there's a work that of Kabbalah called um, Shari Kedusha, the Gates of Holiness, from Rabbi Chaim Vital's quote in chapter one. It's one of the sources, the idea of two souls. And he has, it's, it's, a lot of the ideas in Tanya are from there, but he has a different rendering of the labels. And so he has a, a um, he has the wicked, the righteous, and the pious. That's what you were saying. That's what you would think. So the altar is actually doing something by relabeling them. Like there's actually, it's a discussion for another time, but there is a reason why the Altar does not call the tzaddik of Tanya Chassid, he calls them a tzaddik. It's to denote you know, that that actually is an expectation and that on some level, if a, a Benini who's not a tzaddik is in some level failing to meet an expectation. He's not just surpassing. But anyway, um, so, the, so just on, on the level of the words, you know, that's, you know, righteous is, is, uh, is normal. So, okay. Does God have to create evil in order for people to be rewarded for doing good? No, they can no, be rewarded, no. They can be rewarded for doing good. So then why do he create evil in order to reward the righteous? No, that's, 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 that's what it says. So that's if, why is it rewarding for doing good if there is no bad? It's just, it's not necessarily a reward. Because if they have to choose it. It's just... But you can't choose to do good if there's no bad. Like, really? Really? So what are you choosing otherwise? Uh, let me ask you a question. Why should you be warded for making a choice? Is it A, because you could have chosen otherwise, or B, because you were the one who chose? I'm asking you, what, what, what justifies the reward? What justifies your deservingness? You're the one who chose, right? It's the attribution to you that is key, right? So just to illustrate this as a silly example, let us decide, and it's not really such a moral choice, but let's say, I have decided that I want to drink Coca-Cola. I have decided that my own free volition because I have the power to make that decision for myself. Okay, let's just grant that for a moment. And I walk into the gas station to buy the Coca-Cola, and the shelves are lined with Coca-Cola. There's no Pepsi, there's no Sprite. There's nothing else other than Coca-Cola. And I walk out there with a Coca-Cola. Now the outside observer might say, well, <laughs> obviously you took Coca-Cola, there's nothing else. But what they don't realize is I took Coca-Cola because I, I would, because even if there had been only one Coca-Cola and everything else, I would still have taken Coca-Cola because the Coca-Cola was coming from me. It's a silly example. Don't overanalyze it. The, the key... I, I, no, no. The key thing is that, that the element of choice in terms of optionality, that you could have done one thing or done the other thing, is not the key element. The key element in reward and punishment is attribution. The, 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 the Jewish philosophers discuss this in great detail. Not everyone is in agreement that you could have chosen differently, by the way. There are Jewish thinkers who believe that even though it's your choice, you couldn't necessarily choose and chosen differently. There's a lot of ways of thinking about choice. What the element you need from, from that makes you deserving of reward is that it's attributed to you. Okay. To illustrate this, who's to blame for everything? God. Other other than your choices, I'm saying everything else. It's God's fault. Right? Is God good? Yes. Could God choose to do evil? I'm not asking in our eyes, conceptually. Yeah. Yeah. You could choose to do evil? Yeah. You could choose to do anything else. Okay. <laughs> what is evil? 
What? Whatever he decides is evil. What is good? This is go back to word games. Words have to refer to something. They're not labels. They're not like stickers. We started. I said what God is good. So then, what's evil? Thou should deny God. Now, in any ultimate sense, is it coherent to think of God self-denying ultimately? If God is doing anything of His own volition, then it's by definition good. Yes. Like it, it. Now. So the, the fact that God is good does not preclude him from being the one who decides to do what he does, okay? So it, it, there's no reason that you need evil in order to have choice to do good. It's, just, it's not true. It does change the nature of the choice. I'll grant you that. It's a different kind of choice when you choose good over evil. Yeah. Now, you'll notice here what the word that he uses. He doesn't say you get a reward for being righteous or for doing good. You get a reward for? Overcoming, overcoming evil. Subjugating the evil. Okay. Um, in other words, like this, there is something that God really values, which is godly things. And if you do godly things in a way that they're attributed to you, you'll get rewarded. And okay, fine, great, wonderful. There's also something else that God really thinks is important and delights in. He really delights in. He delights it when you know those those, those demons we spoke about yesterday. Someone takes the demon and goes, ah, Mr. Demon, you think you're so powerful. Well, you sit down here and you watch me do some mitzvahs. Ah, you can't do anything about it. That's right. Well, too bad for you. Yeah. And no, I'm not going to be mean to the people around me. I'm going to be nice to them. Oh, you feel powerless. So bad for you. Right. I mean, isn't that what it's like to live a life of Torah mitzvahs when you have a Yitzhahara? Yeah. Okay, so there's an added element that God is delighted. Aside from the good stuff you're doing, how you're treating the little demon inside you. Does that mean he likes that more? Oh, yes, much more. Much, much more. Because think about it. Which is more delightful? Which one do you get a better kick out of? Doing your thing or seeing those you hate subjugated? Okay. But if it righteousness... Righteousness um, is fully aligned with with the creator. And why do they need reward in, in the first place? Which why do they need what? Why do they need the reward in the first place to do something that is in their nature? Like meaning, if was that you're you're assuming that the what's that, what's that, what's that, what's that, you're assuming that reward is something that is meant to motivate you. That's your que- the question is based on that assumption, right? You don't need to reward me for breathing because like I'm going to breathe anyway, right? Yeah. Granted. Um, most halachic, most Jewish thinkers do not think of reward as there for motivational purposes. They think of reward as, as existential. In other words, the idea being is that, is that um, doing things which are in alignment with God should bring God's presence into the world. And that's the, because the, or the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah kind of thing. Um, so, so if you think about it that way, um, okay. So um, yeah, he creates the evil so that when you're when when you're doing good, you're not the righteous aren't just doing good. They're actually in addition to doing good, they are subjugating evil. That's going to be relevant later on when the Alter Rebbe speaks about how someone with the Eight Sahara can actually give God more delight than someone without one. Because well, he has to find the evil out in the world and subjugate it. <laughs> it's a little more complicated. Um, now, what about the punishing the wicked? 
Why would God want to create evil so he could punish the wicked? They're being punished for doing what they were designed to do. They can still choose how to do it. They can figure it's a hard to do it. They can still choose I'm asking why. I'm not asking why they're being punished. I'm asking you why would God want to create evil so that He could punish the wicked? So that the reward feels How does it feel when you despise somebody and you destroy them? That's right. It feels really good. So we've now discovered there are many ways for God to delight. He can delight in giving life to holiness. Right? He can delight in the subjugation of evil. And he can delight in the obliteration of evil. Now, the latter two require, though... That sounds very human. On the contrary, you are made like God. In other words, why is it that human beings... Like, it's like why, do human being, why are human beings built that way? Now, 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 now here's, the thing. here's the thing. Could God, and this is very important, could God have decided that what he's going to delight in is something else entirely that we can't even conceive of? Yeah, he could have, but he didn't. I thought we're specifically not supposed to delight in the obliteration. Oh, no, 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 that's not true. B'naif avech al-tismach, when your enemies fall, don't rejoice, that verse, that only applies to Jews. Famous medrash, um, that when, uh, when, um, when Haman was humiliated in front of Mordechai, Mordechai uh, rubbed it in. And so Haman says, doesn't it say, when your enemies fall, you shouldn't rejoice? And he says, no, that only applies to Jews. Um, but but um, and they quoted something else. Yeah, but no, on the contrary, it says, Hashem sinura, those who love God hate evil. Oh, no, no, no. You know, we, we ask God, we call him the God of vengeance. Come on, we say, the God of vengeance should appear. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, like... It's, uh, it's part of our other religion. I mean, he's also, you know, loving and kind and all those other kind of things too, but no. I mean, if you, if you want to have long-term, in other words like this, if you want to have long-term relationships with the people, no, do not rejoice in, 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 in defeating your enemies because they're not truly your enemies. But if they are truly your enemies, then, I mean, have you ever, um, listen, two weeks ago we learned, we learned uh, Parshas Bashalach and Splitting of the Sea. And there was the Shiras Hayam, the song. You read the song? What's most of it a description of? And then God did this to our enemies, then did that to our enemies, and he pummeled them this way, and he pummeled them that way, and all the other enemies, they were so afraid. Right? And, like, and, and when Chizkiyahu um, did not sing a song after Hashem saved the Jewish people from the Assyrians, um, God didn't make him a Shiach. So, you know. Oh, no, 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 no. You're just as you only take revenge about the right things. Really? Yeah. Can you take revenge in a unholy way and in a holy way? Absolutely. And who are, and who am I to judge what's the right type of revenge and, like, what is proportionate? Oh, pro- we don't want proportion. It's not about proportionate. Okay. Um, so, the Rambam writes in the laws of the laws of deus, laws of character. So in the end, he writes about the prohibition of revenge. And he says, revenge is a very, very bad trait. 
It's a very evil trait. Why is it an evil trait? What, what is the classic example of revenge that's forbidden in the Talmud? I ask you if I can borrow your hammer. And you say no. But I'm pretty annoyed with you. So some time goes by and you ask me if I can, you can borrow my screwdriver. And I say, no, you don't let me your hammer. That's very evil. Why is that very evil? So the Rambam says the reason it's very evil. That means I am way too emotionally invested in hammers and screwdrivers. The problem is that revenge means that you are, you're emotionally bound up with what the Ram calls hevle hazman, the vanities of time, or things that have only temporal value. Revenge should only be taken of things that have eternal value. Like what? Um, let's say when the Midianites caused the Jews to sin, God sent the Jewish people in a war of vengeance for the honor and dignity of the Jewish people. Um, it says in the Talmud that, and it's quoted in Jewish law, that any Torah scholar who does not take vengeance like a snake is not a true Torah scholar. In other words, vengeance comes from having values. You can't value things and not have vengeance. They go hand in hand. The problem with vengeance is, is that human beings, what are the things that we value? So would you say that we should be pro-capital punishment? Hashem is pro-capital punishment. Um, I mean, like in a... I don't know. That's, that, 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 what, there's a difference between values and pragmatism. It's always important to differentiate those, right? I can think that something is truly important, and that's, and that, and that's true in, conceptually, and then think, practically speaking, right, there's all sorts of real-life considerations, which means that the value, if we would attempt to implement it, wouldn't be implemented. That's what the sages did, right? The sages voluntarily... It's not, we don't have capital punishment not because of exile. We don't have capital punishment because the sages voluntarily moved out of the temple and suspended capital punishment because they felt it wasn't, being, it wasn't being done properly. It wasn't being applied justly. But that doesn't mean it in principle it's wrong. And so it becomes a pragmatic thing and you have to figure out and weigh the different things. I mean, that's... A, right? So, yeah, I mean, there's... There, there, if you're having a discussion of abstract morals and, and philosophy and, and are trying to understand God, then, then yeah. I mean, vengeance is, you know, it's right there in the Ten Commandments, right? He's, he's jealous, right? He takes vengeance. I mean, you know, uh, let me put this very, very simply in, in other terms. Um, would you want to be married to somebody who wouldn't be jealous if you spent time with um, other men? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't mind. Just do it. It doesn't bother me. No. Right? You probably wouldn't, right? Because what does that mean? They don't value you. They don't value you. They're really like, like, there's something off about the values, right? Like, it, it, okay. Jealousy and vengeance are are consequences of value. Now, the thing is, most of the stuff that causes us to feel vengeful is stuff that really doesn't have intrinsic value. So hammers and screwdrivers are just things you need at a particular point in time. You didn't have the hammer, get over it. There's no reason to be mean to someone later on. Right? But things that relate to you know, ultimate truth, so that's different. Like, That's if, wrong. If, if, yeah, but if they felt that that person did them wrong, and they want to like take a revenge on that, is that like who's there to judge what's right? That's to why we have a Torah. So the Torah tells us what are the types of things. So let me put it very simply. You always can ask yourself the following thing. Yeah, if if you're if you're um, 
if your ego is involved, that's a good sign that this is not vengeance coming from a holy place. Um, now, okay, I'm not, I'm not telling you it's always so easy to tell that, but like, by and large, no, vengeance is a very bad thing because it, 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 there are many things which in the abstract are not bad, but in practice they are bad because they tend towards, the, the, they tend towards evil, they tend towards the material, they tend towards um, what the Sahara. I mean, I'll give you an example. In, in the Gemara, the desire to procreate is called, is called the Sahara. Did you know that? Which is weird, right? Why is the desire to procreate called the Sahara? Something inherently wrong with the desire to procreate, and what's the answer? The desire to procreate in human beings is general tends towards evil and moral corruption, and therefore has to be reined in. And there are other things which are not, which which tend towards good, like say reason. Now, could reason be used for evil? But the more reasonable person is, they generally tend to be. So you see what I'm saying? Like, like so, it, it, something in the abstract might be able to go both ways, but in real life because of how human beings are, they tend towards one thing or the other. So if you're going to ask me about like vengeance, like a generic, a generic topic about vengeance, yeah, vengeance is very bad. Because vengeance is about like getting back at those who have done wrong to that which I value. And that which I value is very much wrapped around stuff which you know, doesn't really deserve that level of importance. My ego, my self-importance, my comfort. Now, if you can free vengeance from all of those things and only apply vengeance to what, you know, Hashem and, and his glory, well, then that's different. You know, and, and when that's appropriate, we have a Torah. And if you're not exactly sure how the Torah applies to this, you ask someone with more wisdom and more knowledge of the Torah than you. Right? Yeah, but, but if someone has hurt you about a matter which is like, you know, financial, emotional, physical, like you can certainly pursue, you know, your, your rights, but you should never take vengeance. That, that's, that's very, very bad. But if someone's gone against Hashem, that's different. They have to make sure that that's not coming from a place. You know, very often you can just say, make it about, uh, it's all, I'm being zealous on Hashem's behalf, right? They, there's a, they say about Pinchas, right? Pinchas, uh, Pinchas was uh, zealous, right? So you know what the word zealous, like the Hebrew word kanoi? It's from the same word as um, jealousy. And, he, and Rashi says he, he, he acted, you know, in, he acted, he quieted God's anger because he acted in, on God's behalf and you know, killed him. But the interesting thing people point out is that Pinchas first saw what happened and then picked up the spear. The other people in life walking around with spears looking for who to pick, stick it into. People like, they're very vengeful, they're very spiteful, they want to, and so they're looking for things that they can be self-righteous about and, and you know, and angry about and upset about. And a person who's really righteous in a holy way, like they're actually a very nice person and very calm and very peaceful and just certain things are so immoral and such an affront to Hashem that they, they cannot be tolerated and they have to be, and even after the event, they have to be pursued and eradicated and removed. You know, that's how Hashem's attitude is to a Malik, right? Okay. So like, it's not like, so we want to understand. So Hashem creates Hashem creates the klipa, not just so, not just so that um, it can be subjugated, but also there's a different way of bringing God's um, delight, which is in the just utter destruction. Of it. The the the, destru- the punishment of evil is its annihilation. That's how it's punished ultimately. Good. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now we have hopefully a better picture of how 
Hashem speaks to create holiness and speaks to create klipa. Now he's going to build upon this a little bit more and we're going to come down to ultimately having an understanding of what idolatry really is. That's where we're going to get to the end of the chapters. We want to understand um, what idolatry is because the whole point was that every sin is really idolatry and every mitzvah is the unity of God. So we figure out what the unity of God is. Now we're trying to figure out what idolatry really is. Good? Yeah. All right.